Hey, really good friends. This podcast contains adult content and language. Listen with care. Hello, Hello. and welcome to Historically Really Good Friends, a queer history podcast. I'm Rachel Craig. And I'm Jared Femblo. Hey, how are you? Good, how are you? I'm good. I'm a little sleepy this week, but I think I've already said that on previous podcasts, so maybe I'm just a little sleepy every week. (laughs) I feel that's how the weight of the world is becoming a lot, so I think it's an excusable feeling to be tired all the time now. Okay, thank you. I I do appreciate that. I needed that validation. And of course. I thanks. Yeah, Everybody thank you. after you listen or even if you want to go now, go take a nap. Just nap today at some point. Like give yourself the opportunity to nap, please. Yes, please. And if you're not a nap person cuz I have had people tell me that they are not they nap don't like people. Naps? Yes, and I don't believe you and I think that you're lying and you don't know how to have fun. Right. I don't trust you. I'm sorry to have been so aggressive just now, but I that is a deeply held belief of mine that if you <laughs> if you don't like dessert and if you don't like naps, I just don't trust you as much. Mm-hmm. Is it because it's be, is it because they don't like the things that you like, or because like they're not letting loose? <laughs> well, I think maybe both because I do okay. love dessert and naps. Mm, me too. But I, yeah, I just think you don't. I don't understand, maybe. I think it's confusing to me because they are both such fabulous, fantastic things. Yeah. I just want people, I just want everyone to be able to enjoy them. So what's your favorite dessert and your favorite length of nap? Oh, no. Okay. Okay. Well, I'm going to start with the nap question first because I used to be a person who, like in college, full two-hour nap. Mm-hmm. midday mm-hmm. just the best mm-hmm. but then as I've m- matured I just one didn't have a lot of time and also had read I guess that that long of naps aren't good for you right so I tried to get on the 30 minute nap train and I will tell you it was it was a really hard adjustment but once I do it now I do feel very refreshed so a good I would say 30 to 45 minute nap is a sweet spot for me now really see i feel like mm-hmm. no matter the length i'm gonna wake up and i'm not gonna know where i am or what year <laughs> it is like i'm gonna be completely out of it for at least like 10 to 15 to 20 minutes so it's like That's you fair. might as well just nap as long as your body wants you to yeah just take the full thing although yeah now tell me this this sorry tmi folks i don't know but do you love waking up and like you're just you're just like sweaty and you don't know what time it is (laughs) and you're just like you just nap you just nap so hard you just like worked out your body because sometimes I wake up from that and I'm like I'm a new person I've detoxed yeah that's your body detoxing every bad thing out of your body you're in that okay so I guess that's just me yeah no I love to like not love I want to wake up and I want to be like a little cold almost you know because then you can like pull the covers over you and then you can like Mm. snuggle up a little bit warmer like I don't want to feel like I want to go to sleep I want to go to sleep in Mm -hmm. a little bit of a chilled room a Mm -hmm. good fan going yeah me too and get cozy and then fall asleep and when I wake up I've like risen from the pits (laughs) now no I want to be like (laughs) 
cryo frozen or whatever it is like cryogenically <laughs> frozen yeah. and then i like step out of the freezer when i wake up okay, that's what perfect. i want is it a true fact that walt disney's <laughs> head was cryogenically frozen i can't i can't definitively give you an answer i'll leave it at that do you, so do you not know either is that just a rumor that i heard or is that like a fact yeah i think that's like a fun little myth i don't think it actually i don't think that's actually like a thing All right if somebody knows please let us know, I know it's no, just I'm like a get hate mail <laughs> we're gonna get hate mail about walt <laughs> disney's ass yeah. specifically okay interesting and then yeah i didn't answer the dessert question yeah and then dessert um what's my favorite dessert I'm mm-hmm. probably like a solid chocolate item. I'm not a big, I wouldn't say ice cream's my favorite, but maybe like a cake or a brownie. You would go for ice cream first? No, no, no. I'm saying not oh. ice cream first. Oh, Pro- oh. Like a like a baked good, I think. Yeah. Um, Same. So, uh, some kind of chocolate baked good. That's not okay. a cookie. It has to have some density to it. Okay. You know? Mm-hmm. So you're more of the brownie route. Yeah. How about you? Mm, okay. I really love, there are these little square cookies. And they okay. have three layers to them. Oh, they're the almond ones, the rainbow uh-huh. almond cookies. Uh-huh. Yep. Uh-huh. And it's green, pink, and yellow with the almond paste oh, in they're... between and then chocolate on the outside. Yep. Mm-hmm. I uh-huh. will agree. Those are also my favorites. I love them so much. My mom made me some, like homemade uh, mm-hmm. me some for Christmas this year. And honestly, it was better than any other time I had them. And I looked up a recipe to make them. It's a terrible undertaking, but they those are fantastic cookies. I don't really know what they're called. They're just called rainbow cookies. Too. That's what I call them. Some kind of cookie. Yeah. yeah. Listen, if when if and when I die, uh, bury me with rainbow cookies. So you want to be cryogenically frozen for a nap. Uh-huh. But then if uh, if you die, uh-huh. you want to be buried with rainbow cookies. Noted. Well, okay. You want to know what I really want? I do want to know. Tell me. Okay. I really want to be turned into a tree. I Yeah. Okay. You know what I'm talking fair. about? I do too. I like those. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's like give back to the earth. Yes. Like mm-hmm. provide life in a different way. Mm-hmm. And also that way people can have you around. There's also yeah, ones well, I saw I that's not providing more life, but you could turn ashes into like a record, I guess. There's a lot of things you can do now. And do what with it? What is it? What's the record playing? Play it. No, I know, like but what's music. on it? What music? Music. You choose it? I, I guess, yeah, like, I guess music that the person liked maybe or that reminds you of them. I don't know. If people can get cryogenically frozen, apparently, we can yeah, do guys. anything now. Ugh, and I love that. I love technology. Okay, it's good to know. It's fully noted now. Jared, did you ever watch The Real Housewives? Of? Which one? Any of them. Yeah, I watched, I mean, I didn't, like, sit down and turn it on, but, like, my mom... My mom watches, so I would, you know. Okay. So I would you're not watch an it. avid viewer. No, I'm a, a, an adjacent viewer. Okay. Um, more of a, no, a Real Housewives novice. Absolutely. Say. Yeah. So <laughs> it reminds me of this episode of Real Housewives of New Jersey. And if you've seen this one, it's a really good one. I know Teresa and I know Caroline. Okay. So okay. It, it involves Teresa. Okay. With the rainbow sprinkle cookie incident, does this ring in any bells for you? No, I've never heard of this. Tell me everything. <laughs> <laughs> so, Real Housewives of New Jersey, Teresa 
Judice, Teresa Judice. Is that how you say it? Well, that's how they say it. Oh, okay, okay. As like Jersey Italians. Okay. Judice, but sure. It's, she's Teresa Judice. Okay. So <laughs> Teresa, another housewife on the show is Melissa, and it's Teresa's sister-in-law, and they mm-hmm. kind of feud back and forth throughout like the whole show. Okay. So one Christmas, Melissa brought to Teresa's house rainbow sprinkle cookies so -hmm. not the rainbow cookies we're talking about but just like cookies with rainbow Rainbow sprinkles on them like from Shoprite or your local supermarket those are really good they're very good right agreed and Teresa threw them in the garbage no because (laughs) (laughs) because she was just like that's tacky get that out of my house the rainbow sprinkle cookies and and Melissa was like, well, I did it because there's kids here and it's a Christmas party right. and yada, yada, yada. And it was this big feud over the rainbow sprinkle cookies and the garbage. So. I feel like it's more of like the um, the thought that counts. Like you are you don't come to a house empty handed, right? Is something that yes. I feel like both of us were kind of raised on. And so the, mm-hmm. the principal stands there. She came with something in tow. So like she's being a good guest. Yeah. And also those cookies are delicious. So Absolutely. I don't see what the problem is that they're just like, I guess, too tacky for the Judy Chase. Okay. But well, I love a good rainbow sprinkle cookie and regular rainbow cookie, cookie, whatever they're called. Yeah. Melissa, bring them over to my house. We love Melissa Gorga. So yeah, that's the that's the rainbow sprinkle cookie incident. And I implore everyone to check out that oh season God. of Real Housewives of New Jersey. I just might. This history podcast has become both queer history and Mm -hmm. the history of the Real Housewives franchise. Uh, You can come to us with any of your questions, comments, or queries. Yeah, your queries. Love that. that? Thanks. Perfect. Um, Speaking about history, let's talk about personal history. Okay. Who was your like sexual awakening, like celebrity crush? Okay, so I'm going to say. I'm not going to, no. So you have to think about this very logically for a moment. So Zac Efron was the big person of the time, the big like heartthrob of Uh this time. But I wasn't, oh, this is such an embarrassing story. No, please. But I I wasn't like, I was just like, yeah, Zac Efron's cutie pie. We love Mm -hmm. Zac Efron. Mm Mm-hmm. But I was a big Disney Channel kid. Okay. So I kind of have – this is a double-pronged answer, and both okay. are fairly embarrassing. Um, one, if people can think back, mm-hmm. um, Nick Jonas was on mm-hmm. um, Disney Channel commercials, mm-hmm. and I – realized that i like wanted to care for nick they were talking about having like diabetes or something and i was like i would do so many things for nick jonas like i would give him his his insulin Insulin. and and i just like wanted to like please nick jonas in all of these ways and i was like i think i'm into nick jonas and then also the first like posters of boys i had in my Mm -hmm. room was a (laughs) a ryan lochte poster do you know who that is no he was like an olympic uh, making another appearance an olympic swimmer he actually got in a lot of trouble because he like vandalized stuff whenever he was in brazil or something and lied and said he was mugged it was a whole thing he's problematic okay yeah but at the time he was very hot and he was on my wall oh i love that i have another answer actually as well this is for our um older demographic I watched the show Family Ties, which was an old sitcom from like 
80s, I think. And Michael J. Fox is in it um, as Alex P. Keaton. And that, I'm going to say that Mm -hmm. one really did it for me. Alex P. Keaton. Okay, interesting. How about you? For me, I would say it was the underwear models in like the packaging in like department stores. And then it says so much about you. Does it? It does. Okay, I'll take it. Um, And then also. chris evans in the fantastic four Mm. so he's flame or the human torch or whatever the fuck and there's this one scene i don't remember what happens what causes this but all i can remember is that he runs (laughs) out and he's naked um and he has a little pink puffer jacket wrapped around his waist Mm. it's like really tiny so he's like completely ripped and he's like basically naked he's like half over half nude he's like 95 percent nude and then he has this little like pink puffer jacket around his waist and that was kind of i think the that was the that was the star nail in the coffin yeah, yeah. <laughs> seriously oh uh, chris evans still though no see i disagree do you yeah i don't i don't he's not my type anymore he was back then but i i truly could not tell you a single thing that happened in the fantastic four movie except that he was the human torch and that that little pink jacket scene happened so sounds like fantastic i think that's all you need to take away from that it was fantastic the fantastic four oh yeah literally the fantastic four seconds that's all that's the whole movie seriously that's good (laughs) (laughs) thank you quick on my feet yeah you really are wow (laughs) (laughs) all right well nice thank you for indulging me in that little look into your life you're a little exposing ourselves but anyway, Should we get into it. Shall we get into it this week? Yeah, that was I so guess, fun. I kind of forgot we? what we were doing here. Let's I know sometimes it's it. just like nice to just we haven't seen each other in a hot second, so it's like nice to just like talk about it. But we're here to do one thing. Yes. All right. So we can we can jump right in. Um, today we're going to be talking about what historian Susan Stryker has named quote the first known instance of collective militant queer resistance to police harassment in United States history. Okay. The Compton's cafeteria riot. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. I feel like when people hear queer resistance to police they automatically are going to think of stonewall yes they are but this we will get into this Mm -hmm. did happen before stonewall and is kind of like its lesser known Mm -hmm. predecessor all right nice sweet let's get into it yeah so the sources I used for today include Compton's Cafeteria Riot, the trans-led uprising before Stonewall, and the Latina who upheld its legacy by Jordan Villegas for Latina Compton's Cafeteria Riot, a historic act of trans resistance three years before Stonewall by Sam Levin for The Guardian. Don't Let History Forget About Compton's Cafeteria Riot by Neil Broberman for Advocate. Police Brutality and Why It Is an LGBTQ Issue, Report and Story by MJ Eckhaus and Saxon MJ for Kent State University Fusion, and the UCLA School of Law Williams Institute Report on Discrimination and Harassment by Law Enforcement Officers in the LGBTQ community so that may have given you some hints about what's to come but before we kind of jump in i want to give a brief content warning up front as well as a disclaimer tonight we are going to be talking about police violence towards trans people personally i'm the beneficiary of law enforcement work and i have to acknowledge and appreciate those benefits i have people in my life that i love and respect who are or were law enforcement officers and i have always been and always will be a person who feels seen heard and protected by the police 
this story is not necessarily a statement on the current work being done to address treatment of marginalized people, including queer people within the criminal legal system, but it's going to be a way to contextualize the current ideals of LGBTQ plus rights movement, the impact of police violence as a catalyst for many activist movements, reasons why we're seeing present day advocacy around things like No Cops at Pride, and to honor the legacy of queer people, namely trans women of color, in their ongoing defense of civil rights. And just like in general, here at Herguff, we're like always open to your input and feedback. So we encourage you to listen all the way through and then kind of feel free to always reach out with questions, comments, concerns. Okay, so we're going to set the stage. All right, dim the lights. We're setting the stage. Okay, let me, let <laughs> me get into it. Yeah, you got to like, got to get comfy. Like, got to yeah. get ready. Yeah, okay. 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 Mm-hmm. So you ready? You there? Yeah, I'm there. Okay. So it's summer 1966, San Francisco's Tenderloin District, a California oasis for trans people compared to neighboring neighborhoods where trans women, mainly trans women of color, were unwelcome. We're three years before the historic Stonewall riot in New York City. The Tenderloin District was being reported by TV news as, quote, a hotbed for homosexuals and transvestites to engage in the marketplace of vice, degradation, and human misery, unquote. Mm. Police violence towards queer communities and communities of color was the norm. Dancing with a same-sex partner was illegal. Sodomy laws were still in effect. Laws against cross-dressing were used to specifically target trans people. So... Now, enter Jean Compton's Cafeteria, the designated spot for 24-hour coffee, shelter, and socialization among the trans women of the Tenderloin District, many of whom were sex workers as a means of survival. This community refuge at the corner of Turk Street and Taylor Street was a harbor for the women to commiserate and gather together, though the owners and staff were less inclined to see it in the same way. At this time, trans women were being forced out of their homes, neighborhoods, being targeted by police, and frequently being harassed and arrested while having their 3 a.m. coffee at Compton's. At the owner's encouragement, the San Francisco police would frequently sweep through the district to curb, quote, female impersonation and other immoral behaviors. Trans women were being met with closed doors anywhere they went, including the surrounding gay bars, and so they had no options besides Compton's as a place where they could all gather together. We're feeling it. We're there. We're in the moment. Absolutely. And it's so interesting because like a real quick sidebar, knowing the tenderloin now or, you know, in a more modern context, they frame that area as like one of the most dangerous areas in San Francisco. So it's interesting that it's starting out as this queer harbor and then it's evolving into one of the most dangerous areas um, of San Francisco. In my research, I think it was regarded as that at the time mm-hmm. as well. Okay. And I think most of it refers to the amount of queer people that are just able to be in that area. Mm-hmm. Um, and also the fact that it is still very impoverished and does not have very safe living conditions. And that is, I think, all part of our story now. Mm-hmm. So one August night, We're in 1966, August night, a specific date that has never been recorded by law enforcement or newspapers. The women were at their wits end as a Compton's worker called the police to remove the customers, just simply for existing 
as trans women in the Mm. restaurant. Okay. So as the police arrived, things quickly began to escalate. The police attempted to arrest one of the women and like were grabbing her Mm -hmm. and the screaming queens, as they were often called, fought back. Years of being arrested for, quote, obstructing the sidewalk, violating anti-cross-dressing ordinances, and other crimes, quote-unquote, that essentially just made it illegal to exist as a trans person boiled over, and quickly the boiling coffee cups were being thrown in the police officers' faces, sugar shakers were being hurled through glass windows, and the patrons were using their purses and heels as a means to defend themselves. The next day, those who arrived at Compton's were refused entry for being, acting, or just looking queer, which started another round of picketing and eventually reshattering of the glass windows that were broken the previous evening with sugar shakers. Soon, Compton's began closing its doors at midnight and in 1972 was shuttered permanently. So that's kind of the record that we have of that particular evening. And we're going to talk a little bit about why. That's all the information that we have. But that's that's kind of the moment. That's so wild that it's going like it's such a quick shift from being the place where they go. Like this is the designated spot to all of a sudden being an unwelcoming space that they're no longer you know, they they no longer have access to like out of nowhere. Yeah. And so it was. From how I understand it, Mm -hmm. I think it was never really safe necessarily, but it was a place that was open and provided just like a space for everyone to be together, often after experiencing violence from, you know, people from like Mm -hmm. customers or police at the time that they could at least use this space to gather together and have each other. Many of them, you know, did not have houses many of them were living on the streets at the time and so this was a place that offered warmth shelter and like the ability to kind of congregate and people noted too while i was doing my research that they weren't trying to be activists at the time like they weren't using the space as a meeting and organizing space they weren't necessarily interested in organizing they were Mm -hmm. just trying to like shoot the shit and drink coffee and try to get through these days that they were living that was right what it was for and so this was a fairly regular occurrence, too, that the workers and owners of, of Compton's were calling the police mm. on the women there just mm-hmm. for kind of being there and making up reasons why. And so okay. I think that this was just kind of, it came to a head on this evening and there's no necessarily other catalyst why. It was mm-hmm. just this was the night that right. things kind of went off the rails. Okay. So Compton's cafeteria riot has lasting impacts for San Francisco, for trans women, and for civil rights just across the board. First of all, Neil Broverman notes that the arrests made at Compton's that night in 1966 were certainly unethical, though at the time they were not unlawful. 1960s San Francisco was not the progressive haven it sometimes is regarded as today, Though some people described it as a wonderland and a place where they finally felt they could belong, other people were reminded of how it felt to be the targets of discrimination, harassment, and assault. Being gender nonconforming, trans, or genderqueer meant people saw you as, quote, something that could be thrown away in a trash can, Felicia Flames Elizondo of San Francisco recalled. Mm. For queer people, discrimination and family rejection led to poverty, and impoverished people often live in heavily policed areas or work in illegal economies to survive, contributing to decades-long targeting of queer people, sex workers, and unhoused people in large cities like San Francisco. Mm -hmm. So... 
Compton's cafeteria riot was not documented at the time, or it has been erased. Like, the documentation that existed has been erased. So either no one recorded it, Mm -hmm. or newspapers didn't cover it, Mm -hmm. or whatever was there at the time has basically been disappeared. It makes sense that police wouldn't write down what happened, or it makes sense that newspapers wouldn't cover this, because if this is you know, a frequent occurrence and it's before queer rights really, the movement really took off. Mm -hmm. People are getting away with this abuse, so they're not going to write it down. No one's going to care. I mean, at this time too, um, trans women and other queer people, uh, when they were involved in crimes, police would write NHI in their books and it 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 stood for no humans involved. And so right. the thinking around that time, especially with police, I mean, they were, you know, they were the ones that were kind of letting all of the stuff get away with it. So if they're the ones that are, you know, committing crimes and doing things, like they're not going to be the ones that are going to write it down. Like, Right. And it's also worth noting, too, that this was a lot of this was the start of a collective queer rights movement and, and part of the other civil rights movements at the time in the 60s. But the way that we see LGBT Q plus movements today is not exactly how it was then, right? It wasn't really like as much of a collectivist thing. And when so many people are fighting for civil rights, it wasn't as unified as it is because like the trans experience is very different than like you, it's, we say LGBTQ plus and we say Mm -hmm. queer rights movement and all of these things, but the experiences are very different and the needs are very different. And so at this time it was still fairly isolated in what individual groups were fighting for like the feminist (laughs) movement did not include women of color it did not necessarily include trans women or lesbians like everything was fairly divided too so there wasn't as much coverage of just any queer uprising or queer movement because it wasn't as cohesive i think as we typically think of it today right so for all of those reasons that it wasn't Again, we would consider these actions unlawful today, but at the time they weren't. So for those reasons, it may not have been recorded for reasons like trans women weren't being protected or didn't feel Mm -hmm. like they were part of a larger community. So that could also be why it wasn't covered in newspapers. But for all of those reasons, and I'm sure others, we just don't have a detailed record of what happened, but we do have this information and some more because of work done by people like Susan Stryker, Felicia Flames, Donna Persana, Colette Legrand, Honey Mahogany, and other activists who have fought to keep the memory of Compton's riot and other trans acts of resistance alive in San Francisco and the broader U.S. So Felicia Elizonda, aka Felicia Flames, was a Latina trans activist who also found refuge at Compton's in the 60s and fought to remember the riot as a pivotal pre-Stonewall moment in queer liberation. Felicia played key roles in shaping the current conditions of San Francisco, including organizing the annual San Francisco Trans March and the commemorative plaque at the former location of Compton's cafeteria. It reads, Here marks the site of Jean Compton's cafeteria where a riot took place one August night when transgender women and gay men stood up for their rights and fought against police brutality, poverty, oppression, and discrimination in the tenderloin. We, the transgender, gay, lesbian, and bisexual community, are dedicating this plaque to the heroes of our civil rights movement. So in San Francisco, June 22nd is now Jean Compton's Cafeteria Riot Day. 
And in 2016, Felicia worked to rename the 100 block of Taylor Street to Jean Compton's Cafeteria Way. Mm. She reported, quote, we were murdered, beat up, thrown in jail because we couldn't be who we were meant to be. I want this as a way to give memory to all the girls and boys who stood up for all of us at one time to be who we were meant to be. Felicia passed away in 2021 at the age of 74, but her work and legacy still remain central to queer history. Luis Gutierrez Mock, Felicia's friend, recalls her saying, quote, I'm a diva, I'm a bitch, I'm a legend, and I'm your history. I love that. So that's, that's Felicia. She's great. So similarly, people like Donna Persona and Honey Mahogany continue to work to solidify the Tenderloin District as the world's first ever transcultural district and to protect trans women of color in the district from being pushed out through rapid gentrification of the Bay Area. Mm. So that's kind of what you're talking about before, that this area has a reputation and there are some people who are looking to change that, but by just kind of displacing the people who are already there rather than investing in community economic resources and things like that. Donna Persona says, quote, these ladies took the bullets for us. Everyone in our community stands on their shoulders. In terms of policing and the queer community, police systems are meant to uphold laws that reinforce discrimination and oppression faced by the most marginalized members of our society and are not equipped to acknowledge the nuances that create community uprisings, riots, and other violence. In this particular case, police were called to respond to a situation where active discrimination was happening and the law was on the police's side when they attempted to arrest and further persecute trans people, sex workers, and people of color. Mm -hmm. Laws are a reflection of all of us, and while some law enforcement officers may align with those laws and have internal or external biases while serving on the job, the criminal legal system is built and encouraged to uphold our societal norms and values. So it's important to acknowledge how our biases are reflected by the laws of this country then and now. An anonymous source reporting to the Kent State University Fusion magazine said, quote, I had some encounters with police over the years. When you live outside, everything you do is public. Imagine everything you do in your home being visible to the world, including to law enforcement. When people have already determined that you're lesser, you start agreeing and your concern for what other people will see you do diminishes. So people get drunk, high, or into fights in public. Much like incarcerated people, when you're challenged by someone else, you must answer the challenge. One time about 10 years ago, I got in a fight with someone and got arrested. I sat in jail for almost a week. After being released, I left. While I was on the road hitchhiking, I got stopped by the cops. They said I didn't have a legal right to be there. They carded me, and I didn't know there was a warrant for me for failure to appear in court. They go on to say, The next time you are out and you see someone flying a sign, panhandling, or asleep on a bench or begging for food, look around. Watch people look through them. Notice how they don't see or hear the pleas for leftovers or change. The next time you see the police interacting with a homeless person, watch their body language. Watch the way they can stand over them. Then ask yourself if things have changed. I think you'll know for yourself. Socially, the way we think about and view queer people, sex workers, people of color, and the unhoused greatly impacts our social policies and policing. And then this becomes a cycle that continues to harm marginalized groups. A 2013 Williams Institute survey found that nearly half of transgender survey respondents said they feel uncomfortable seeking police assistance. Today, there are many queer police officers and many police officers who are not biased towards members of the queer community, although systems in which people cannot feel protected by law enforcement are not effective systems. So that's kind of the history of the first 
militant queer (laughs) resistance against police violence. And to hear more about this, about some parts of the story that I wasn't able to include and to hear more about the women still doing this work in San Francisco, you can check out Susan Stryker's documentary called Screaming Queens, which tells like a fantastic story and talks more about the activism still being done. That's a great story. I didn't know anything about it. It's hard to talk about this because this is something that when we talk about it, we talk about it in the past, but it's something that's very much still happening in the present. Right. And that's why stories like this are important as a as a way of understanding history and like missing pieces of history, but mm-hmm. also to like fully contextualize things that happen today. And this is why conversations about intersectionality and like looking at situations or policies as a whole rather than trying to evaluate one specific circumstance is really important I think and this sheds light on that right and I think you made a really good point also while you were telling the story that it's important to invest in the community it's important to invest in community resources rather than funneling money into different avenues that don't necessarily need the money these are all important topics that we can't ignore and that we can't just pretend that it doesn't affect us because you know sometimes the neighborhoods that we move into or the apartment buildings that we move into you know we are the ones that are moving into these neighborhoods that are gentrifying different areas and yeah it does have to do a lot with the corporations and landlords and um, bigger systems at work but at the same time you can reach out to your community and you can be active in your community right this story does say a lot about how law enforcement treats queer people, especially trans women, trans women of color. Right. Trans women of color experience the most violence, Mm -hmm. not only at the hands of police, but just in general in our society. They are some of the most vulnerable members of our communities and of our society. And like, like you were saying, I think this story touches on stuff we have talked about in the past. Like Mm -hmm. when we were talking um, in a previous episode about, you know, not really having laws that are arresting people based on their identity or their queerness or, you know, we don't have sodomy laws anymore. But the f- you, you gave a statistic at that point that talked about higher rates of incarceration for queer people. Mm-hmm. And it's conversations like this that help contextualize that stuff as well, right? So right. if you are being forced out of your home at a young age and need to find ways to make money or to survive that may involve you then in illegal activities, or maybe you are predisposed to using drugs then, or many of us use drugs as a means to cope or relax, and mm-hmm. we are not in the same situations. Right. But as was talked about in this story, imagine all of the things that you do being public and right. and then that risk that that puts you at. And so you mentioned too, the reputation that certain areas have and that gentrification just displaces people mm-hmm. and has them then being forced to find other places to seek refuge and that's not the solution and and it is a reflection of what we value and what we want we would rather not have shelters near us we would rather not have to acknowledge that these are parts of our society so instead we don't talk to them and don't talk about them and don't invest in that we just kind of paper over the issue and so this was a really fascinating story to learn about and contextualize so many things for me and also yeah existed before stonewall too and that's i think the main point that people think of like the main turning point the main catalyst Mm -hmm. um, or flashpoint for 
you know, the queer rights movement and LGBTQ plus rights in general as existing post Stonewall, but that's not necessarily true. And we've seen that in every episode so far, but this is like a very specific example. Right. Great story. Great work. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you, Rachel. That was a wonderful story. I appreciate you telling me that. Thanks for listening, Jared. Of course, I'll do it every week. I'll always be here to listen to your (laughs) stories. But now you're going to listen to my story. I'm so excited. And this week I'm talking about someone that I had never heard of before. It was someone that had popped up um, on like one of those, you know, 15 people to know um, kind of lists. Okay. So this week I'm talking about the black trans pioneer, Lucy Hicks Anderson. Okay. I am very, we've got some pioneers this week, some unknown underground pioneers. The sources I used for this story are the Wikipedia page on Lucy Hicks Anderson, Lucy Hicks Anderson, a black trans pioneer by Malaysia Walker for ACLU, Mississippi, the Lucy Hicks Anderson profile from Queer Portraits in History, and the Lucy Hicks Anderson profile on the Legacy Projects website. So, Lucy Lawson is born in Wadi, Kentucky, which is a town with a population of around 2,400 people as of 2018. So that was one of the most recent (laughs) statistics, and it's around 2,400 people. Okay. And it's known by very few as for having a train station in the 20th century. And it's like, those are the two things that are known about Wadi, Kentucky. Wadi, Kentucky um, is an unincorporated part of Kentucky, although it has has a post office, but it's unincorporated. So it's like this little tiny, there's like 900 homes or something like that, I think I read. Like it is tiny it is okay. a very small town okay so they not probably much like, is happening they here they probably don't have a target <laughs> no <laughs> okay. absolutely they barely have a post office okay, <laughs> okay i'm a asking target. a lot <laughs> yeah okay she's born sometime during the year 1886 which is only one year after general robert e lee surrenders the last major confederate army to the north and she's assigned male at birth oh jeez. so she's black she's trans we're one year after the uh, Civil War ends. It's not a good time, really, to be black and trans. No, sorry. The laughter is completely nervous laughter because I yeah. could not imagine. Like, I'm I'm genuinely having a nervous reaction hearing about all of this at that now and at the time period. Great. So, Off to a great how start. you're feeling uncomfortable right. and, like, Imagine how she's feeling. I, I, yes. Right? Okay. So not much is known about the first few years of her life, but by the time she's ready to begin schooling, so like around the age of five or six, she adamantly insists that she's not a boy, but actually a girl, expects to be treated as such by her mother and family, and would like to wear dresses to class. The self-advocacy is astounding. I'm very Impeccable proud. Impeccable for someone that is five or six years old. Truly, I'm very and proud. Around the same time, she also picks the name Lucy for herself. Nobody gives this to her. She basically says, my name is Lucy. This is who I am. This is who I expect you 
to treat me as. Beautiful. And also I'd like to note here to all those people out there that still present day say that young children don't have a concept of their own gender identities. I would like to to have you maybe to listen a little you. listen right. I will offer you this story, maybe take a listen, take take a moment to to consider. Right. Get wrecked. <laughs> That's exactly what I'm saying. <laughs> and so terminology for trans people would a few decades later be coined and begin to give language to their experiences but because it doesn't exist yet lucy's mother is extremely concerned and so she seeks medical advice from a local physician and this doctor incredibly tells lucy's mother to support and respect this decision and raise lucy as a girl and so surprisingly Lucy's mother and family does. Okay, I'm I am very happy to hear this. Don't prank me now. Don't do a prank on no, me. No, like, I'm not. Uh, okay, I'm fascinated in a good way, like absolutely in a good way. Right. Please tell me more. So school begins. Lucy attends, and she's attending in the physical presentation that she feels comfortable with. She's wearing dresses, and she's accepted as a young girl. And so she goes through schooling, and at the age of 15, Lucy drops out of school, she leaves home, and she begins doing domestic work at various residences to support herself. After five years of this domestic work, Lucy, who's now 20, begins her migration west and moves to Pecos, Texas, where she takes a job working at a hotel. After about a decade of working at the hotel, she continues west to New Mexico. Here, she meets a man by the name of Clarence Hicks. And by 1920, at the age of 34, Lucy gets married, and she becomes Mrs. Clarence Hicks. We love that. Congrats. Mazel. The couple relocates even further west to the coastal town of Oxnard, California, in Ventura County, which is about an hour north of Los Angeles. And Lucy quickly proves valuable to her new community, working as a nanny and as a chef. She wins baking contests and awards for her cooking, and she frequently hosts lavish dinner parties for the wealthy families of the town, where all of the dishes are cooked solely by her. Lucy, I want an invite to one of these dinner parties. (laughs) Seriously. Queer Portraits in History paints this honorable depiction of her charitable life in Oxnard, saying, She also threw welcome parties at the church for town visitors, going away parties for enlisted soldiers, and gave generously to charities such as the Red Cross and Boy Scouts. Lucy is also this person that families turn to when their family members don't return from the war. It's also reported that Lucy purchased nearly $50,000 in war bonds in support of the U.S. efforts in World War II. I mean, Lucy is as American as baseball and apple pie. She is this, like, ideal woman. You know, she's being there for her community. She's being valuable. She's being supportive. She's everything that this community could ask for. Right. Lucy is well-liked and is in good standing within her community. And because she's married to Clarence and she's doing all of this domestic work, she's able to save a considerable amount of money for herself. With this money, Lucy buys property in Oxnard, And she buys a boarding house, which she actually uses as a front for a brothel and a speakeasy, both of which are incredibly illegal in 1920s Prohibition era. Right. So Lucy is the ideal 
homemaker, housewife, like all around mother figure in her community. She's like an outstanding community member. And She's at a the brilliant same time, socialite. Right. And at the same time running a speakeasy slash brothel that she's purchased herself. Right. She's she's a woman of business. She is. She is the business bitch, Kelly Kapoor. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> and so according to scholar C. Riley Snorton, when the sheriff arrested her one night for selling liquor, her double-barreled reputation paid off. Charles Donlin, the town's leading banker, promptly bailed her out because he had scheduled a huge dinner party, which would have collapsed dismally with Lucy in jail. And so people know what she's doing in the community, but because of how well she's liked and because of the good position that she's in, people are kind of like, we don't care. Like, we want you to cook for us. We want you to take care of our children. Like, you right. do you. As long as you keep contributing to this community, like, you're good. Right, right. Like, we need your elaborate dinner parties. I I could not do this on my own. Please, we need right. your help. The backbone of Oxnard, California. <laughs> Truly. In 1929, after nine years of marriage, Lucy and Clarence get a divorce for unknown reasons. But Lucy continues to operate her brothel as a madam successfully. Wow, okay. In 1944, at the age of 58, so we're jumping ahead. Okay. She divorces Clarence. She's living in Oxnard. She's running this brothel successfully. She's still in good standing with the community. Everything's good. So in 1944, at the age of 58, Lucy remarries for a second time, and this time it's to a retired soldier from New York named Reuben Anderson. Okay. And so that's how she becomes Lucy Hicks Anderson. Okay. The two continue to live in Oxnard, maintaining a happy life until the next year in 1945, when a venereal disease outbreak in the Navy is traced back to Lucy's brothel, causing much unwanted attention. Mm. A sailor claims that he got the disease from one of the women working there, but he doesn't specify which. So authorities take this as an opportunity to require all of the women, including Lucy, no. to undergo medical examination by a local doctor. Okay, that doesn't even make sense. That's, I don't know what ground, okay, that doesn't make sense. I don't know what grounds no. you have to be forcing people to have medical examinations because even if a disease outbreak was being, or like an STI outbreak or something was being traced to someone, that's not a crime. And no. You don't get to know. I What? Okay. So physical examinations can be incredibly damaging to transgender fluid, intersex, and non-binary folks, often not getting the appropriate treatments or being referred to with improper pronouns or being given medical advice that seek to, quote unquote, fix their problems, which right. is not the case. Right. Um, and forced physical examinations have also been grossly used throughout history, but are even seen in modern day, such as with the anti-trans sports bill passed in various states last year that would require minors to be inspected and forced to play with whatever gender team their genitals aligned with, and with the bill that Texas governor and pervert Greg Abbott just wrote. Yeah. The Washington Post reports that, quote, he wrote a letter to the Department of Family and Protective Services portraying transgender-specific health care, such as puberty-blocking drugs, as quote-unquote child abuse. The letter further advised all licensed professionals who have direct contact with children, including teachers and doctors, to report such child abuse to DFPS and said those who don't could be subject to criminal penalties. 
Finally, the governor's letter says that Texas law also imposes a duty on DFPS to investigate the parents of a child who is subjected to these abusive gender transitioning procedures. Okay. Greg Abbott is on a mission. Truly, I... There is no reason there's no, for any of the things be existing right now in Texas. And for those of you there, I am sorry. And I hope that mm-hmm. you can find support um, in the ways that you need to. And having family and caregivers that do the bare minimum to support their children right. is not – I don't even know how I – I have no words and I'm still processing all of it. But yes, to, to – add to the story it obviously has lasting impacts and is and the the medicalization of gender identity is a huge problem absolutely and so what does the local doctor who inspects lucy do he goes public with his findings and outs her as a trans woman okay when the ventura county district attorney learns that lucy was assigned male at birth He voids the couple's marriage and decides to try both Lucy and Ruben for perjury, arguing that Lucy lied about her sex on the marriage license and has also been impersonating a woman this entire time. The DA also cites marriage between two men as being illegal. So here's transphobia and homophobia coming in for double damage. Lucy and Ruben go to court where they're both tried by the federal government. During her trial, Lucy becomes the first trans woman to defend her identity in court. Lucy states to the judge, quote, I defy any doctor in the world to prove that I am not a woman. I have lived, dressed, acted just like what I am, a woman. However, despite their defense, and after nearly 60 years of living openly as a woman, Lucy loses the case. On the counts of perjury on her marriage license, Lucy receives 10 years of probation. And because of the arguments of impersonation, Lucy is also prohibited from wearing women's clothing. Finally, the federal government also tries and charges the couple with fraud because Lucy was receiving substance allotments as the wife of a soldier under the GI Bill, and initially also with failing to register for the draft until she proved she had been too old to register, and the court sentences them each to separate male federal prisons. Okay. It's it's one slap in the face after another, after another, after right. another. And it goes into what we were just talking about earlier too, that these laws of the criminal legal system at the time were the only purpose they served was to, you know, continue to enforce societal norms. They didn't create a more right. just, equitable, safe society. Like enforcing laws no. against wearing different clothes is who does that help who who does that serve except to create legal justification to your individual moral feelings which is not what the point of an equitable or just society is so right go ahead tell me how things keep happening so unfortunately even worse When both Lucy and Ruben are released from jail years later, the town of Oxnard bars them from returning by the police chief, who threatens further prosecution if they do. Like, on what grounds? Just because? Just because he can. Okay. Yeah, there's no legal legal backing. Okay. The entire city of Oxnard basically says "Mm, that the woman that was valuable to our community and everyone loved and everyone respected and everyone valued. No can't come back 
we found out through a complete invasion of privacy and violation of medical practice and laws um, that you have a different body than we would like for you to have. And so actually, Mm -hmm. we don't want you here anymore. Thank you for all the help and support and the love that you offered our community. Goodbye. Right. Get out. Slam right in the face. Okay. And so what else is known about Lucy and Ruben in this unfortunate story is that they relocate an hour south to Los Angeles where they live an incredibly quiet life as husband and wife until her death in 1954 at the age of 68. And that is the short story of the incredibly powerful and brave socialite, chef, and entrepreneur Lucy Hicks Anderson, who fought for her right to marriage and her right to live truthfully as a woman. Lucy, we love you. And to for every single part of this story, you were a fierce fierce Mm self-advocate and I am truly saddened at the turn that that took and I would have imagined that not that any single person has to prove their value or worth because your existence is you are worth like by existing you are worthy of anything you could ever dream of but the fact that even after contributing so much it's so much not dependent on that, you know, that people's deeply held beliefs and convictions will still overturn that no matter what. And I am very happy at least to know that um, her and her husband were able to live out the rest of their days together. Um, As much as it is terrible that they weren't able Mm -hmm. to do it in the place that they wanted to and contributed so much to and helped build the community of, Um, It is nice to know that along the way that there were people who were supportive and caring. And I think that's important too. Mm -hmm. Especially her family. I mean, Mm -hmm. 1886 and the doctor was like, yeah, raise her as a girl, do it right. And they agreed to it. It's like she lived her life you know, 90 something percent of it, 60 full years, basically, as a woman, right, and never had a problem. That's recorded. I mean, you know, it's, there's not a ton recorded on Lucy, except for basically what I said. But from what we know, she lived a very happy and successful life as a woman for 60 something odd years. And then to all of a sudden, towards the end of her life, have to prove herself and then like have to go through all of these trials like it's just so degrading and mm-hmm. just not something someone should ever have to go through um and she was one of the first people to in a court of law um defend her identity and defend her right to marriage um which okay. is incredibly powerful and takes a lot of courage and she just was not afraid to do it and she's just someone that should absolutely be looked up to and Mm -hmm. it's just shocking to me that I had never heard of her before and she's just this like powerhouse yes I had never heard this story before either and I am so grateful you told it and it's true that she had so much courage and resilience that no one should have to develop in that way 
you know right. you shouldn't have to be forced into these situations to prove you are courageous or resilient because we all are regardless of the traumas that we face but the fact right. that she was still able to do it time and time again just demonstrates this level of of courage that it's hard it's hard to imagine when things can be so fragile for you all the time that you still right come out swinging every single day every and single say, time like, unapologetically this is it and i'm mm -hmm. no matter what you want to say about me or do to me this is this is what it is like and she said it too she's right, like i am a woman and it's true i mean what more in the way that we choose to construct what womanhood or manhood is what more are you, are you asking for at that time i mean I'm assuming right. in 1940s, Lucy was in every way the ideal woman. <laughs> Literally, she was the picture-perfect housewife. You know, she was cooking and baking and cleaning. And At the time of what, right, at the time what people constructed or wanted femininity and womanhood to be, she was it. And so... She checked every box. Exactly, exactly. And so it... It really does just go to show you that we are deeply held in our in our beliefs and convictions mm -hmm. and we don't want things to be outside of that. And I am truly sorry that it has affected wonderful, wonderful people like Lucy in that way. Exactly. So tonight, Lucy Hicks Anderson, we remember you and honor you and thank you for everything you went through and everything that you represent and um, will continue to represent to those who are to still come. Yes, I'm so happy I got to hear your story, Lucy. I, it was, uh, now I have it forever and I'm gonna think about it always. So thanks for sharing, Jared. Thank you, thanks for listening. Always. I'll be here every week. <laughs> <laughs> thanks for tuning in to episode five of Historically Really Good Friends, where we talked about trans revolutionaries of color. This is your weekly reminder that acknowledging the queerness of our history makes even the short, sweaty power naps a little bit more fun. Please make sure to rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen. And to see photos from this week's episode, make sure to check out our Instagram at historicallyreally. We hope to see you again next week. Goodbye! Bye.